0: The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Hi, I'm Jen Cochran. Welcome to episode five. My guest today is Elena Sanino. She's a sought-after guide for getting out of your own way and living fully in the now. Her work as a life coach, yoga teacher, and speaker is an invitation to unearth, attune to, and embody the inner strength and wisdom that each of us carries within us everywhere we go. She inspires individuals and groups to remove self-imposed obstacles, find steadiness in the now, and say yes to your wild, audacious dreams. Welcome, Elena. I'm so excited to have you with me today. Welcome. Welcome. I'm so
1: excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I would love for you to share with us a little bit about your cancer journey, yeah. when that started and, and what that
1: looked like for you. Sure. So my cancer journey, probably like many, came totally unbeknownst to me. <laughs> I was a healthy, newly engaged, I had literally gotten engaged six days prior to my diagnosis, 23-year-old. Uh, living in DC. I had been away in Italy for a year and I'd come back for a man who, you know, you are in the right place at the right time, right? Because his dad was a radiologist, their family best friend was a cardiologist. And I was sitting at their Passover Seder table when the lymph node on the base of my neck had become the size of a ping pong ball. And, you know, I was a preschool classroom assistant, so I had had colds all winter long. You know, all the things that preschool teachers feel, right? Not feeling well, colds, coughs, all those things. But, no, we never thought anything of it at this dinner. They kind of looked at me and thought, I think we're going to get you to see somebody. (laughs) So I went in to see an internist. I think it was the next day. I was, in fact, it was the nurse who I hadn't even seen the doctor yet. Actually said the word cancer to me, and I remember my then fiance looking at me going, "What did she just say?" No, 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 no. Right, like we kind of obliterated because it it wasn't even fat, like couldn't even fathom that this was a word that would be used in the same sentence as me. Well, it turns out that after about a week and a half of staging, I was diagnosed. So this was 1997. Uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma stage 2b, which meant that I was symptomatic, but it was above my diaphragm. And it turns out that i had been having symptoms for months, probably even when I was still in Italy. Night sweats that I had always, you know, put off to, well, I'm a, I'm a hot sleeper. You know, the, the cough that wouldn't go away, all the different things. And in fact, my oncologist said to me at the time, well, this is really a bread and butter cancer. we got this, you're healthy, you're active, at the time, the things that were most important to me were becoming a teacher and having children, right? Those, are, like, those were my life. Those were really, I don't want to say they were my life goals, but they were my life goals. And I was on my way. I was enrolled in, becoming enrolled in a master's program You know, in the following year. i just gotten engaged. Life was on track. How old were you then? I was 23. Or I was turning 23 that year. So I was young or maybe turning 24. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I was turning 24. I always get the years messed up. So I was very young and I had been relatively healthy my entire life. It was really interesting because we, we had to make some decisions about the chemotherapy because at that point I was young and healthy and I really wanted to maintain the possibility of fertility into the future, right? So the oncologist, I remember we chose my oncologist the things that stick out to me about this journey are really interesting, right? Not so much like the medicines, but it was, it was those personal interactions. We chose our oncologist because my father was a neurosurgeon at the time, right? I have this new extended family, which is also in the medical field. And so I kind of went around with an entourage. <laughs> and when we went for a consult at Hopkins, they kept me a really long time to the point that at 11.55, I was like, I need saltine crackers to eat because I can't eat anything afternoon and I, because I had a CT scan that evening. Whereas when we walked into Dr. Feigert's office at Arlington Hospital, he took a look at the lobby, the waiting room, and everyone that was with me and said, I think we're going to need more chairs. <laughs> and I knew instantly that he was going to be my doctor. And we made a choice about chemotherapy that had low fertility impact, but it had a high probability of lung damage because of the bleomycin that was involved in the chemotherapy cocktail. And he said, well, you know, if it happens, for instance, you'll just never run a marathon. And I went, well, that's fine. Cause I'm not a runner. Easy. Done. Picked.
0: Which right? is great. Cause I'm looking at you right now and you're wearing a Marine Corps marathon <laughs> jacket. <laughs> Yeah. So clearly, you did that thing. I ran
1: five. <laughs> right. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah, I am also. I am also a runner. Yeah. Right. So it just it kind of cracked me up. And and the other thing that sticks out to me about that time when I was first diagnosed was. My oncologist had med students that were shadowing from Georgetown and they do bone marrow biopsies, right? Because they want to figure it all out in the staging process. And I was in the room and the oncologist, I guess, had gotten out the needle. And at a certain point, I hear a door open and then thump the med student at the sight of the needle, started turning pale. They like motioned for him to get out and he barely got out the door. There was a bloodstain on that rug for months (laughs) because I couldn't clue that. And I was like, my claim to fame, I made a med student pass up. This is the stuff that kind of got me through that time. But I had, so I went through six months of chemotherapy. Those six months of chemotherapy, I never threw up, which was fabulous. I kept working. I was an assistant in a preschool at the time. In fact, I remember we went and told my preschoolers about what was going to happen because we didn't know, right? Everybody's reactions were so different. We said my hair was going to, you know, I was going to be losing my hair. I went in the next day with still the same hair and the little four-year-olds are like, wait a minute, why do you still have hair? (laughs) And it doesn't happen quite like that. But so I was never nauseous. I kept working. The worst things during those six months were I gained an incredible amount of weight because one, to combat or with some of the chemo drugs, I was being given a lot of steroids So I literally, when I did eventually lose my hair, you know, bald and like a really puffed up face, I was not a pretty picture. (laughs) But those were the worst things for me. And eventually I did lose my hair and I'll never forget. I was driving down. We'd gotten a wig to kind of prepare. I'd gotten my hair cut shorter and then gotten a wig to kind of match that style. And when I eventually started losing my hair, I was driving down 66, probably coming back from teaching, pulling out my hair and throwing it out the window because that, that was like the end, that was the worst to me. Cause I kind of, a, you know, you ask people, what do they love about themselves? I loved my hair. <laughs> and so that was, that was a big part of that, that piece of the journey. And it's so interesting
0: too, because I was always known for my hair,
1: <sighs>
0: having long, thick, curly hair. Like as a kid, my mom went in for a Spanish parents night. My name is Jennifer. There's 8 million Jennifers in our age group, right? and so to keep everybody straight she was like oh the one with the beautiful hair we had gone on a cruise after my first treatment Mm -hmm. and when we got back from that cruise so it was like week you know two and a half Mm -hmm. and I was combing just chunks and I didn't think it was gonna happen that quickly my husband came in and looked in the Waste basket in the bathroom and was like, okay, cousin it is in the waste basket." We got home on a Saturday. He was going to go into work just to clean up some stuff on Sunday. And he said, do you want me to shave your head before I go? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. That seems to make the most sense. So I like shaved my head and then I just did that for a while. And I had tried on a wig and I was like, this is too hot. I'm just going to be too hot. I'm just going to go with hats. My mom ordered me all these hats because that was like one of the things that she could do Mm -hmm. and and support. So I had like 15 hats, I think. And I had someone say to me months later, I didn't know that you had cancer. I just thought you liked fun hats. Because every time she saw me, I was in a hat that matched whatever I was wearing. So it never occurred to her that there was no hair under the hat. (laughs) It was really clearly she didn't know me before I lost my hair, but mm-hmm. yeah, so I kept working as well and just kept showing up doing the yeah. work. well. Yeah, it's and- interesting where our identity sort
1: of lies. Absolutely, and it's—I mean—the other thing was that every Wednesday night after chemo, we ordered Chinese food. We did the
0: same thing.
1: (laughs) Well, so then I couldn't eat Chinese food for years. I've only just started in the last few years. So this was 1997, right? And 2019, it's been about two years that I can eat. I would always like the idea of Chinese food, but then it would get in front of me and I'm like, I can't do it. I just because it brought up this emotional response, probably because I never actually dealt with any of the emotions that I was, because to me, that entire six months, and then even when I recurred five months later, was always about survival. It was just like I never even questioned. I mean, and part of it is because the oncologist said to me, "No, like you've got this right. This is easy," and and it was relatively, especially the first six months. I did get the lung damage, you know. So we, but that was four months in, and so relatively speaking, I was hitting all the buttons, all the milestones. And then six, five months later, I remember I had one of the regular CAT scans. I was teaching downtown, still at this preschool. And I remember driving over the key bridge into Roslyn. And as I was driving over the key bridge, just tears. And I didn't really, I just like, I had this feeling and I don't, I I still can't explain it, but I remember it was a beautiful sunny day. And I was just a wreck. And I was friends with all the CT people by this time, right, at Arlington Hospital, because they're your people. They stick you and all good. And by the time I had the CT, I got home. At a certain point, the phone rings. The door opens. It's my oncologist on the phone and my fiancé walking in the door. And I was like, hmm, what's up? And I had recurred. And they had, unbeknownst to me, my fiancé, my dad – and my oncologist all spoken. So everyone kind of like was converging because who knew how I was going to take this at this point, because I was like scheduled to get married six months later. Right. And we were, I mean, going to an engagement party in Michigan at my parents' house, Ten, not even 10 days later. So I recurred. And at the time they thought that I would only need radiation. And that was the initial plan. And several days later we went to michigan for this engagement party and in the middle of the night i couldn't breathe and i remember getting like waking up my fiance going like well, you need to go get my dad i i can't breathe we i ended up in the emergency room which you know my dad's hospital like all good right it was exactly the right place at the right time i basically had a pericardial window so i had a pericardial fusion i had fluid in the sac around my heart so not connected to the cancer but at this point, there were all of these extra things happening. By the time I got back to the DC area, they were like, yeah, we're not just going to do radiation. I had an emergency surgery to, for this pericardial window to remove the fluid. I ended up having a blood clot when I was in the hospital there. And so even because at that point, we'd started thinking, well, I may not get to pick my chemo this time, right? Like my oncologist had said pretty clearly, we had started planning to go harvest some eggs and that went out the window because no extraneous treatments to, because of the blood clot. And it just, everything started piling on at that point. And that is, I think it was probably the lowest point in the entire journey because everything was fine, but I, I'd already like, I'd had that in my life, right? But suddenly I had, I had beat this thing. I was healthy again. My life was moving on and suddenly it wasn't. And it literally felt like I was being pulled into quicksand. Now I can say all that now. I don't think I ever said that then because even then I was like, no, what do I do? Where do I go? Take me to the next thing. And we did all the consults. We went back to Hopkins for a consult. I still felt like they were lecturing me. I actually did end up having my bone marrow transplant at uh, Georgetown. So I needed chemo, radiation, and then a bone marrow transplant. But my cells were healthy. So they were my own cells. And it's autologous, which also relatively made it easy. I didn't have to deal with a lot of the possible rejection things that others have to contend with.
0: And also the matching. Correct. This is a whole nother... <sighs> it's Finding a... a match at the right time when you're stable and...
1: Yeah. So many yeah. components. So that's really fortunate. It was really fortunate. So I, June 12th, 1998 was my marrow transplant. So this year I actually turn 21. That's like awesome. my, yeah. And you know, that engagement was broken off because we were 23 and 24. We were young, right? It's, that was, it was a tough time, but we've stayed friends and, but I, and I really look back to that entire time and think, well, I was absolutely where I needed to be. And everything happened relatively seamlessly in terms of me getting the care and meeting the doctors that I needed to, because I was in that relationship. It's, and the worst things, frankly, about any of that journey, yeah, the weight gain and the hair were my veins. My veins were the bane of my existence. <laughs> we very quickly learned that my veins were not good at the beginning of chemo. So we put in a port, but even the port, I had to do vein port aerobics, the chemo nurses called it. Because they couldn't get you know clean draws. And then eventually another port, a double lumen was put in for the transplant because it needed to be, I guess, heavier and thicker. And after my transplant, I was in my bathroom in the hospital room, brushing my teeth and my port literally fell out of my chest. I wasn't st- like I, I have no idea how it happened. So then they put in a pick line, which several days later was infected. So I have very few fears in the world, but one of them is if I were to get sick again, how my veins would, how would contend with my veins? Because even to this day, when I go get a blood drawn, like my hand, go to the hand, the best place to get any blood, go there. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, no, no, trust me, because too many things have happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can (laughs) completely relate. I like to joke that I have my dad's veins in my left arm and my mom's veins in my right arm. And my mom has been very um, politely asked by the Red Cross to never come to donate blood because they can't get, I mean, these are like people that all they do is tap people's veins. And she's tried so many times and failed. And they're like, thank you. No, thank you. (laughs) My left arm was my good vein. Yeah, And my right arm is, I'm a tough stick. I will say ports have probably come a long way. Yes. Since They're then. Even I had different. mine in, in 2016 and it was below the skin, like it's underneath. Yeah. Not well, exposed. the first port was below
1: the skin. The double lumen was not because uh-huh. of the types of things they had to put in. But it's, well, I now think back and people, you know, that, know my story a little bit will come talk to me or they'll send me somebody who's going through. And I always say, Hey, look, like this was 1997 and 1998. Everything has changed. Transplants have been revolutionized. I mean, there's so, there's been so much research done and just improvements made and the standard of care is different. And so, you know, I'm really thankful for the treatment that I had and for the doctors who I adored. And I mean, I still keep in touch with my oncologist he was in the hospital. He was at Fairfax Hospital when I eventually actually had my own natural daughter, which wasn't supposed awesome. to, be able to happen. Right. And when I ran my first marathon, I was like, Hey, guess what? <laughs> I'm really, really thankful to all of them. And, and even to that time in my life, I can connect the dots between having my daughter and being diagnosed because I wasn't supposed to be able to have her. I, you know, the lung damage and the marathon, you know, no running. I ran my first marathon because the doctor said I couldn't. <laughs> and, I mean, truly that's, that's what it is. And I met my ex, my now ex-husband training for that first marathon. And so it was a journey that I, that wasn't expected certainly. And I didn't ask for, but I'm also really grateful for it in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about running your first marathon. I, we ran my first marathon because someone indicated that I probably couldn't. Wrong thing to say. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we will come back. Great. And talk about more about your journey. Thank you. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Elena Sanino. And we are talking about her journey with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm. I know one of your nuggets of wisdom is this whole idea, along along with one of mine, that surviving is just the beginning. And mm-hmm. you know, we have this diagnosis, and you put it perfectly, like, we have this diagnosis, and then we got to do the thing. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a bunch of things that we got to do, and, and I think you were similar to how I was during that process, or it was like, okay, we have a diagnosis. Now we got to do the thing. So what's the thing? How are we going to do that? What is that going to look like? Like, what are my steps? Who do I talk to next? Like, so then you just start doing the thing. And then you get to the other side of the thing. And when you're doing the thing, you have all the support. Mm -hmm. You know, the doctors, family, friends, like people just kind of descend. And then you get to the other side of the thing. There's fewer people around. For me, that ended up being one of the more challenging times because the preventative medication that they put me on was making me really sick. Yeah. And it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. I heard a lot of that doesn't make sense. Like <laughs> I see that you have that side effect, but that doesn't make any sense. Like that's not normal. I hear, I, I heard that a lot. Well. I finished my treatment on December 2nd of 2016, and on Valentine's Day of 2017, I registered for the 2018 Dopey Challenge, because I was going to be 45 that year. In 2010, I had run the Disney Marathon. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was sad that I had not signed up for Goofy. Yeah. My plan was to do the Goofy, and then I found out they had the Dopey. My husband likes to call like the Dumbo, or <laughs> he just thinks it's the most ridiculous thing ever that that I did that. But I wanted to show people just because I had gone through this thing and I had done the thing that it was totally doable to reach any goal that I decided to set for myself. Yeah, and it's really interesting what comes up for people because. People get like nervous or, oh, I don't know. That sounds like a crazy thing. Like, why are you doing that?
1: (laughs) Would you Um, rather be?
0: (laughs) Right. And for me, I was like, well, I want to show people that at 45, after I did the thing, like I'd be a year out of chemo at the time. Ironically, I didn't know how ill my medication was making me. So I did the thing in spite of that going on which is kind of curious in itself but really the tagline of this podcast is because surviving is just the beginning we get through the thing and you have all this support and then you get to the other side and the level of support is different it shifts yeah and the more capable you are as a human the fewer people
1: are around to support you absolutely it's it's such an interesting and for me (laughs) the survival aspect, you know, I was really good at doing the thing and getting to all the appointments. I was my best advocate. I was really bad at asking for help, right? So I too had everyone descend on me, but I kind of kept people somewhat at arm distance because I I wanted to be able to be okay on my own. And so that was, you know, receiving that caregiving was really hard for me. The other piece that was hard for me that I didn't really realize at the time was that in that point a to point b doing the thing i never really processed what i was going through so it was always about get to the next appointment get to the next milestone get to the next year of being clean right and and being cancer free i never really gave my pers- myself permission to feel fear to feel sad you know i mean i remember <laughs> when i was at hopkins for the first consult and they, they give you all the statistics because they have to, I, I left him like, I don't know what he was talking about. I mean, I literally was flabbergasted. I'm like, why did I just waste that morning? And, and it was just never even a possibility, but, but those were all real things. And so to me, there was a, there was this absence of feeling, you know, I'm a big journal person in those 18 months from start to finish. I read in my journal twice. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it's called oblivion. It, it just, I was, I don't want to say I was in denial, but I was. And I think my mindset and my coping mechanism, well, my, my doing the thing were a coping mechanism, right? Absolutely. It's how I coped. And so I don't, I don't begrudge that. Like, I'm glad that I had that. I think now I realize that there is a depth of the wholeness of the experience That you can be doing the thing and be focused on survival and and be there, but you can also allow yourself to feel. That allowing yourself to feel isn't dangerous. Right. Right. Uh, When I was on the transplant unit, I have very few memories of those two weeks that I was there. I remember eating macaroni and cheese, like frozen macaroni and cheese dinners for basically the first time in my life because people... I didn't like the hospital food, who does, and somebody was asking me like, what do you want to eat? And I had this, I'm Italian, we're Northern Italian. I mean, like I was born in Italy. So I never really ate frozen mac and cheese, (laughs) you know, it just wasn't what we had at home and I craved it. And so I remember somebody bringing me for mac and cheese and frappuccinos there, you know, there, so the memories are really interesting of what I have. It's the feeling aspects that now I really look back at and I think, huh. Like, I wonder, right, because things then stayed bottled up and continued to come out even recently in, in terms of kind of awareness and tuning into something and realizing that I have all these little stories in my mind and we all have stories in our mind. But that piece of, hey, like, I wonder what would happen if I actually allowed this to be there without just pretending that it's not there. And the first marathon was really, you know in an effort to not live fully because it wasn't about doing anything other than proving the doctor wrong. And then the second one became about proving that the first one wasn't a fluke. And then three, four, three and four became about trying to improve my times. It wasn't until marathon five. I realized, Hey, actually like this entire process is the journey. I get to enjoy this or not, but it's not just the finish line. Right. And that was, I think, what kind of made it all come together, that I would get to that finish line and then be automatically looking to the next thing. And I was like, wait a minute, I think I'm missing something here. And I realized that, right, I could connect those dots all the way back to when I had been going through treatment and diagnosed because it was, was that like perpetually unsatisfied because it was just never going to be enough. I mean, for years, I kept saying to people, well, you know, the doctors did say it's, it's an it's not an if, but a when in terms of a second line cancer, because prior to my bone marrow transplant, I had mini mantle radiation from, you know, my chin to my chest. And so thyroid, you know, in fact, I found out I was hypothyroid training for my first marathon. I was having my regular checkup. I remember getting a call from my oncologist going, you are not to go run 18 miles tomorrow. And I went, yeah, right. Why? Why? But because my thyroid levels were really low, but it was kind of always this thing of just, all right, just keep plugging, just keep doing. And then there became this moment of, all right, what if there was a way to live fully to allow for all of these experiences to be there for the entirety of the emotion, the the presence, the awareness, and still to be moving forward. There's a quote that I love by Diane Ackerman and for as many times as I shared it, I never get the wording exactly right, but it's this, it's I don't want to have gotten to the end of my life and realized I've only lived the width of it. I want to have lived the depth of it as well. There is so much more to that. Just doing the thing. And I think that was the biggest one. Well, I had two big takeaways. That was one of them from that entire time in my life that there's just we can do the thing and feel. Yes. <laughs> okay. And perhaps we're living more fully when we allow both to be happening. Yeah, there's this
0: interesting area of research within communications theory. When it was shared with me, it made me understand fully how I made sense of my situation because in this theory is around sense making. I was able to make sense of my personal situation in a way that other people couldn't reconcile for themselves because, and I've always said, you, you get this survivor mantle put Mm -hmm. upon you for having to share that you're going through this thing because when you, the response you get, and I shared this with my mom again, recently when she was having to share some medical things with people in her life and she said it was so weird like I told them I was fine but then they were like texting me individually saying are you really fine and she's like I'm really fine and I said I know but they're not fine it's not about you (laughs) when you share the things that are challenging it's not about you it's about them and someone shared a quote with me We do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Mm -hmm. That is very present when you have to share a cancer diagnosis because what you get back is the fear, the anger, the sadness, the stress, whatever emotions people have associated either through their own life or the life of people in their lives. That's what you get reflected back. It's really not at all about where we are in that process.
1: Well, and I think we do it to ourselves sometimes, right? I mean, I, for a long time, carried around this, like, ghost on my shoulder, right? That I, I mean, I remember hiking. I was on, in a retreat in British Columbia, and you, there were, you know, there were, call them 12 people total, and everyone kind of split up into different hiking groups by pace, And I was in the second group and we were moving at a pretty good clip, but I could always hear the panting, like, you know, my breath and and I couldn't hear anybody else's. Nobody else was breathing that heavy. And I would put myself at the back of the line and be like, well, I don't want anyone to have to wait for me. And by day three, you kind of check in with the executive director and just kind of reflect on how things are going. And I had this conversation with him. I'm like, well, I don't know. Should I move down a group? And he was like, why? Why? do you really think that you're the only one breathing heavy and it was just and and he said look you've been carrying around this ghost of this lung damage like how much longer do you want to keep carrying that weight and and it was this really interesting just like in my face in a really nurturing way it doesn't sound like it the way I just told it. (laughs) next day I was able to go out and enjoy where I was and not have to feel bad that I was breathing heavy or holding somebody else up. Nobody else cared, but it was my projection, right? Of, of all of the stuff that right. I was carrying with me, which was really interesting to just kind of look at. And, and then it kind of reminded me like, Hey, actually my body healed itself because autologous stem cells, right? They were my own cells, which means that my body had what it needed. I just needed to let it be strong. I needed to believe that it could be. And so it was this really interesting just kind of reminder and I and I've had this reminder over and over again in my life. My you know this the second thing that I really believe in to be true that I learned from this entire journey is that we have everything we need and we crave already inside of us. I mean here I was, right, what did I want most? I wanted to be a teacher, I wanted to have a child. And suddenly, I mean I was menopausal at 27. Because the second time around, you know, you don't get to pick. And when you're getting ready for transplant, they give you chemo to knock everything out. Right. So I was fully menopausal. Well, I had my own daughter. I mean, we had paid our $50,000 for a donor egg. (laughs) And then in the process of getting, going through the regimens of that medicine to, you know, to get my body ready, I was five weeks pregnant. But I never put all that together until a few years ago when I went, huh, that's interesting, my body healed itself, basically. it gave me the baby that I wanted. like I wonder if there's this inner strength and wisdom that I perhaps have been ignoring <laughs> that's a real thing, and so it's it's an interesting journey, I think, to move past the expectations, the lenses, the filters of everybody the the assumptions that people make and they put on us, or you know and it goes both ways, and then how we put them on ourselves
0: well, and the stress that. That putting those
1: things on ourselves actually create it, it's a reminder of right the difference between force and ease you know I practice this and my yoga mat has been such an incredible teacher of acceptance and and ease and you know when you stop pushing right that's where things emerge and and that's so so true but it it takes, and when you're in it, it's really hard to to hear that, right? I'm not sure that I would have wanted to hear, hey, you know, probably wouldn't have gone over well, but now looking back on it, I absolutely know that a little less force, and but it's, it's doing the things because that's what you're supposed to do. You do the things. Sometimes doing the things doesn't allow for ease.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting as well, sort of our perspective at the time, Um, Because I always tell people, you know, a bad day on the trail is not really bad. It's just information. It's information to how the next day can be better. And we could focus on the, that was really didn't go the way that I expected it to. Or you can look at, well, how did that go? And why did it go that way? And what can I learn? Oh, I still got to see the eagle. So that was cool. Yeah. Like, even though I walked way more than I planned to today, like, I still, there was still, like, I got out, and it wasn't riding the couch. (laughs) And we lose sight so easily. We, we definitely have a big challenge of...
1: Well, it's that, like, bias, right? It's the confirmation bias of, of, of kind of feeding the negative piece, that negative spiral and, and staying there. And when we stay there, like it's easy to come up with more examples of why it was bad and why it didn't go that way. But it's really interesting that just little shift of, all right, well, but what worked or, you know, I showed up and it wasn't, I mean, one of the other things that I am just, and I, I still need the reminders occasionally, but I believe it is that, you know, when we have, expectations, we set ourselves up for trouble. It's one thing to have something that you crave and a vision and to tap into that feeling of it. But when we create this this really narrow expectation, it, we're gonna be perpetually unsatisfied because very little can actually live up to that. Right. But when we allow for for that living fully, for a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of willingness, a lot of allowing, then the other pieces, the oh yeah, I got to see the eagle as you right. Can suddenly emerge and we can feel good about that
0: yeah if we can pivot our judgment into curiosity
1: yes there's so there's so much opportunity there it's it opens things up in ways that I mean I still am always blown away when I lead with curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. It is the pixie dust.
0: It is because when we lead with judgment, we project whether it's onto ourselves or onto others, we project the story that we're creating for them. And I, I said to a client recently, we were talking about this idea of asking for help. hmm which I think is so important and so hard to do. I I will absolutely honor it as difficult to do. So important as humans, we're not meant to walk through this life alone. Mm-hmm. I really believe we are not as capable as we are. There's something in knowing that someone else has your back and can jump in and help you. That is huge. And it doesn't have to be a life partner, it could be a friend, it could be five friends. Mm -hmm. And I had this conversation with a client recently, where could you maybe have asked for help? Instead of focusing on who could have helped, it was all the reasons why all the people who were around were not available or why she thought that they wouldn't be the right person to help. And I was like, okay, do you want someone to project that story on you right now? Yeah. And the eyes lit up. It was like, Oh, oh, Ooh, yeah. no, but we do it. It's, it's our human nature. Absolutely. Like when we flip the story and say, okay, I am not going to put out any judgment. I am just going to list all the people in my life that I love and who love me. I'm just going to make a list of them. Yeah. And then I'm gonna see if I need help with something. I can ask a few people. And all it takes is the first time that you ask a couple people, hey, I have this challenge. One person says, Oh, well, I can help with that. The next time you ask, it is so much easier.
1: <laughs> it's so true, it's so true. It's, there's this element of being able to receive, right? Yes. I think it's just, it's so hard and, and. <laughs> absorbing the receiving because it's one thing to receive it, but it's another thing to truly absorb it and allow yourself to feel it like through your veins and believe that they want it, right. That they're not just doing it because they're, you know, they feel bad for you or whatever it is, but that they, you're actually giving somebody the opportunity to do something that makes them feel good as well. And to just receive that fully is it's really hard for a lot of people, myself included at times, but it's, it's such a a good way to check in and to allow that to then like be part of the rewiring of the brain. Because I think when we allow our bodies to feel something, then it's easier to quiet the voices of the brain that want to whisper other (laughs) things to us.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something magical about being
1: able to receive that support. Yeah. And that, right, the bumps. So I it's funny that as you were kind of talking about, you know, this client reaching out, right? I had a maybe a similar conversation with a client who talked about her favorite time in her life is when things are steady, right? When things are bumpy, it's less comfortable. And she thought of the example of like a being in a plane and that moment that you hit turbulence and her first reaction is like, Oh God, we're going down. And yet she knows in her brain that planes are made to withstand turbulence. Right. Right. I said to her, I'm like, all right. So you hear that from yourself, right? You just said planes are made to withstand turbulence. What, how does that relate to you? And she's like, Oh, well maybe I'm made to withstand the bumps. And so we talked about what it would take for her to believe that. And the interesting thing was, well, wait, I actually have a co-pilot that I could like get help from, right? Her partner. And it was this interesting, but that's really hard. And so for her being able to believe that she was able to withstand that meant that she was going to have to allow somebody else to support her. And that was a really big shift for her, but it's been tremendous. We're just realizing it may be bumpy, like, you know, things aren't going to be easy. Ease does not mean easy, but I can enlist the help of other people. And that doesn't take away from my strengths. It doesn't take away from me, but I can still keep going. Right. Yeah, that is, that is very wise.
0: So I want to thank you. For spending this time with me today. This is amazing. The
1: time goes so fast. It does go fast. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. It's just, I love what the work that you're doing and the community that you are most definitely fostering.
0: Well, thank you so much. Would you like to share your information and how people can contact you?
1: I would. I would love that. So people can learn more about me at my podcast, which is Sunrise in Your Pocket. They can find that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or at my website which is ElenaCenino.com. You can also join me over at the Live Your Sunrise Facebook group, which is a fun, it's like a listening party for the podcast where little daily doses of inspiration and nuggets of, <laughs> of something on any given day.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you and your story. Oh, well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you for allowing me to, to share with your community. Thank you to Elena for sharing her story this week. So many great nuggets of wisdom. My favorite is also this week's personal consciousness minute. Now let's get curious. Last summer, I was struggling with running. I was talking with a friend about how I was finding it to be unusually challenging and not at all in a good way. And she asked me a simple question. Why did running still need to be my thing? Excellent question. I am a movement professional and I've been a runner for years. But I tell my clients if they don't love what they're doing, they're not going to be consistent. And I realized during that conversation that I was not taking my own advice. So I decided to get curious. And that's my challenge for you this week. What have you been doing that no longer lights you up? Or where are you struggling where what you really want is ease? Now get curious about what tweaks or changes you can make to get back to what feels good. Don't forget to come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group to share any aha moments from this week's show or let us know what you're getting curious about. Have a great week and check back in next week when we'll be sharing more stories. Thanks for listening.